Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So, last time I was here, the topic of the talk was um, the art of letting go. And um, somehow the talk stayed with me, partly I think because I talked a little bit about my grandfather's story and, and it didn't feel so complete. And so this week I decided that we would talk about the art of letting go part two, um, because the topic did not let go. And so I'm still here. And for many of you, I have honestly said these things before. There's nothing new. Um, but great wisdom is like that. There's nothing new. <laughs> right? So we started last week um, talking about the second step of the eightfold path. Uh, right intention or right resolve. So a quick review. Um, the Buddha taught whatever we frequently think or ponder upon, um, that becomes the global doing, thinking, being of the mind. It, it directs us. So with right intention, we're looking at the mind and how we're intending and we're discerning the kinds of thoughts that arise in our mind and particularly we're looking at what's called the kalesas or um, the defilements and particularly aversion, ill will, um, desire and greed and um, cruelty and we're leaning in this tendency or we're trying to work on this ability to abandon and let go. So that's where the topic comes from. Um, and the Buddha said, um, whatever a bhikkhu, a seeker, frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So that's what we, where we started with last week. And we said that... Um, with aversion, ill will, or cruelty, you can identify that fairly quickly because usually if you practice aversion, ill will, or cruelty, you know it. There's a feedback loop, right? There's internal tension. People aren't happy. External tension. But with greed and desire, there tends to be more um, ignorance, cloudiness, not much awareness. Um, with that, which is why we talked about it two weeks ago. And also, we live in a culture that does not like words like um, relinquishment, abandonment, right? Um, renunciation, not popular party words, right? <laughs> Renounce, renounce, not, not always something that's in this culture really highly regarded. We are more of a culture of more, more is better. And greed, unfortunately, is um, the fuel of our economic health. We buy more and get more, and purchase more, and then our economy stays good, right? So we talked about that, and I love to go on about that. So 
I'll stop there. So in Pali, um, the word um, for desire is loba. And the word for craving, thirsting, and attachment is tanha. Tanha. And um, using the mindfulness, we can watch in our own lives, in our own minds, how these conditions surface. They surface in everyone. We're born with it. The baby's born. And it, the, to survive, this baby wants the breast and the warm milk and loves the mother's voice and touch. We're hardwired for this craving. It's not something necessarily negative. It's just knowing that it's there and how it affects us. So last week, I did a um, shopping meditation at an outlet mall. <laughs> it was very interesting. Very interesting. And um, so we went to this outlet mall. So this is where you are. there are stores that maybe you couldn't afford to go into those stores if you were on a budget. But in the outlet mall with the sales, they invite you in. You know, if you, you have a limited budget, there's a hope of getting something that you normally can't afford, right? Some, for some of us. And um, so I walked into the outlet mall, and there were signs. There was an event. Sale. Price reduced. 60%, 80%. I mean, really enticing signs. And um, I noticed in this body-mind, I was watching what was happening, right, for me, when I looked at the sale signs. And um, I noticed some excitement, some joy, <laughs> some adrenaline, and almost this, um, this energy of, let's go, you know, let's go get it, right? Let's get something. Um, and I was watching this because I, I sort of identify myself as someone that maybe doesn't like to shop or buy things right. Um, so... So the point that I'm trying to make here is um, there's a line from Gregory Kramer where he says, the mind promotes the hungry self. And I like to say the body-mind promotes the hungry self. And all the cultural influences promote the hungry self. So there was this moment where I stopped in the shopping experience um, and gleeful over my purchases, <laughs> all right, gleeful, and I noticed this new self taking over. I, I kind of feel, felt like um, an actress, a young actress in a movie, maybe <laughs> Reese Witherspoon or somebody like that, you know, like this new personality, like oh, I got this, these things, you know, something new, a new self was there, and I was like, who is that? Who is that self that arose? Um, so... The way we can track desire and greed, the way we can look at that is um, to see the motion of the mind that creates the hunger, right? That looks for the desire and then creates a self around it. And my image of myself at that moment was very glamorous. Oh, I got these glamorous things. And I was watching, you know, you watch this and kind of <laughs> chuckle a little bit, right? If there's mindfulness, you're not so lost in it. So the question then becomes, 
What self do you create around wanting, around desire? What personality structure arises? And if we're looking this way, with mindfulness, what we're implying is there isn't quite a self that's so permanent and fixed. The desire creates the self. And the desire creates the self-centered dream. And in the self-centered dream is generally suffering. Some form of suffering in the self-centered dream. So, So with the desire in the getting, right, sometimes it becomes becoming. There could be an interpersonal hunger. I want that good conversation. I want that person to think well of me. I want that person to want me and have a relationship with me. Right? Um, I want to have a, a connection. All these things are healthy desires. But without them being known, without them being understood, the craving comes up in the clinging. Right? And with that is suffering. Have you had a conversation like that? Or you walk into a social setting, if there's craving and clinging, there's suffering. And there's also this um, suffering of um, the self-centered dream in that too. Right? If I'm defending a self that needs something, then I'm not really there for you. I'm not really engaged, really. I have the craving. It's almost like the craving gets in the way of what we really want. And if we can let go of that craving, we really are fed and nurtured. So, um, so there's becoming, clinging, craving, and then all of a sudden there's this motion of the mind where the object creates a better me. Right? And in that idea of a better me is um, a me that's not enough, a me that's deficient. I don't have enough. I'm not where I want to be. Um, my conditions are not right, so I'm not right. So much suffering there, right? And the letting go and the release is the release of the suffering, where we fail to see what we do have, who we are, the greatness in that, the beauty that's there. So something to ask is, um, who is the me that's creating a self that needs this condition to be okay? And the way we do that is, um, what we tend to do is we see the pattern of greed, clinging, suffering, right? And what we tend to do is then get aversion to the fact that we're doing it. And actually, um, we need, it's a more skillful when we see this pattern come up, the desire or the clinging or the wanting. Um, to be able to 
not put ourselves down for it, but to see it as a moment of enlightenment, right? A moment of, I woke up in this. I woke up and I see this tendency, this tendency that's been there from birth. So I see it, not to have aversion towards it. So I'll read a poem called... um, by Lindsay Hill, and um, I don't have the title, but I'll read it anyway. A boy grew up beside a sea of hooks. He learned to swim in that sea and to notice the hooks as they rose and fell and twisted in the tide. He learned to feel his way at first very slowly in the sea of hooks. He noticed people around him had hooks in them, their skin, and they were pulled in many, many directions. And many of the hooks were small and hard to see. Barely silver in the glinting light down deep. Barely visible and numerous. And some, from the place of his birth, would not put a toe in that sea. And some lived their entire lives full of hooks in the underneath. So the question is, do we live our life full of hooks in the underneath? And how... How do we unhook and why? Is it a phone? I don't know. We don't know what that is. Okay. So, um, (laughs) it's calling me, right? It's a hook. If we could free the mind from not liking what we do, we are free to look, right? If we could free the mind from not liking what comes up, then we're free to look. And, and, and really, um, the thing that I want to say right now about this, <laughs> maybe, um, is that um, it's not that we clearly unhook that we get rid of the hooks, nor do we need to get rid of the hooks. We don't, we don't need to. Um, but that the practice itself frees us. We don't free it. We don't let go. We set up the conditions for letting go through our practice. We don't have to do anything. I always talk about in here, um, I have this avocado tree over my bedroom for some reason. It sits over my bedroom roof. So in the middle of the night, at a certain season, (laughs) I'm sleeping and I hear, right? The avocado let go. The tree let go of the avocado. I don't know why it chose to do that at 2 a.m., right? But all night long, I hear, the tree just lets go and the avocado rolls down, right? And um, this goes on for days on end, and you really wonder why there's an avocado tree there. 
But a lot of times we have so much we want to let go of our stuff, right? We want to let go. We want it to end. We want that cessation. We want it to end. But really, um, things let go when they let go. We just create the conditions for letting go through our practice. That's all we're responsible for, is creating these beautiful conditions. And um, they're the spiritual faculties that help us let go. So, um, and I'll tell you what they are. Well, or not. Um, Well, clearly, it's the ability to pause and look inside. And we bring inquiry. We bring curiosity. Right? We bring our observation. So this is a quality, the inquiry. And with the inquiry, we bring um, energy. We bring joy. Right? We bring the sweetness to it. And when those conditions are present, and we can see the hook, right? you see where we're caught, um, very often there's a release, a cessation that we can all have. It's not far off in the future. It's here, it's right now. There's this release, and that brings tranquility and calm and ease in our lives. When you go, oh, and you let go. Oh, let go. Um, This friend of mine was telling a story to me um, around this time of year. She really has a craving to, um, to be invited to Easter dinner by her family. And generally she's not, by her siblings. She's not included in the group. She's in the out group, for whatever the reason is that she's in that group. And so this time of year comes around, and that craving, that desire, which is normal and healthy and natural, and there's nothing pathological about it whatsoever, right, comes up of, I wish they would invite me. I wish I'd get a call. And she doesn't get that call. And um, she really worked with letting go of this desire, the truth of the way things are. She's not getting the call. And whatever comes up has to be there, a grief, a sadness. And then there was a letting go or this release. I'm releasing this fantasy relationship that isn't really there. It's not going to be there. There's a fantasy of a craving of a certain relationship that's not there, which we all carry. We all carry these fantasy relationships in which we're happy all the time and people adore and love us and accept us for who we are. Don't we? Right? The world is good. You get me and you value me. Right? And you invite me. You want want me. Right? You are the wind beneath my wings kind of thing. We all want that. It's normal in our culture. So it didn't come, and she let go. She put it down. She put the desire down. This this relationship is not (coughs) there. And then, um, and she felt good about it. She felt some peace and some ease. And then um, she was telling another friend about this. And this is how subtle it all is. The friend looked at her and looked so hurt for her and went, oh, honey, that's not right. <laughs> and she watched her the eye contact you know, and her facial expression and the tone, and the whole thing rose up again, like a monster grabbing her, like, I got you again, right? Mm-hmm. It rose up again. It created that energy, you know, seeing the facial expression, mm-hmm. 
and the tone and the sadness in her friend. Oh, no, I'm hooked again. I want this again. So it comes and goes and comes and goes, and it's very subtle, and we watch it, and we watch it. Um, we watch how we get caught and we get uncaught. The tendency for us is that we get uncaught a lot. We put a lot down, but when we're hooked, we see it because we can see the suffering more than we tend to see the ease. We don't notice the ease. That's our ignorance. We don't notice the calm. So, um, so, so the idea would be to see when you do let go, when there is ease, when you just put it down, where you release it. And in, the Buddha really taught to see when you let it go and know that, know that clearly, clear comprehension around that, because it is happening all the time. You let go of your bed to come meditate here, right? A lot of you are letting go of some personal space. We're so crowded, <laughs> and you did that well. Some of you let go of a croissant and a good cup of coffee to sit here. You let go, right? So we do let go, and it's important for us to see it. And this is what the Buddha said. Um, I dwell without thirst with a mind centered in peace. So we don't have this thirst. There's some peace. There is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, which surpasses even bliss. I do not take part or envy that which is inferior. So sometimes I think about like um, something like a, a sugar craving. For those of us who love and crave <coughs> sugar and want something sweet, we want something sweet in the day, the end of the meal. Um, who's got the sugar craving? Yes, sugar. And it, it's really like a metaphor. That can become, if you allow that sugar craving to take hold, uh, it's not pleasant. It's just not good for the body, right? Not at all. But, but it can easily take hold. It can easily take hold. It can really be um, a problem, a big craving. But what is it we're really craving? We're craving something sweet. And the next question is, what, what is sweet? What is sweet? What's really sweet? Something to contemplate. And our culture, you know, I, I think the Buddha would say a still mind is sweet. A mind with ease and peace is sweet. A mind not attached or clinging is sweet and full and, and satiated by its nature. A mind that empties a little and rests is sweet. It's just not something that the culture promotes. Sometimes stillness itself is very sweet and full. <coughs> so we're going for the things that are pseudo, the pseudo stuff, not the real, you know? We're going for the fast food. Um, Soleil, where is Soleil? Somewhere, she's back there. She did a beautiful post on Facebook. <laughs> the talks are inspired by Facebook now. <laughs> and um, about how in Japan... Um, she could tell you this more accurately. Um, the government has um, promoted, I think, if any, did any of you see her posts? Um, tree bathing 
where they go and they just sit under a tree and it's got all this health benefit. Do you think our government is going to do that? <laughs> no, I don't think so. So, but, but I thought, what a beautiful thing for a culture or a society or a government to honor nature and just not walking around, you're not hiking in it, you're bathing, you're breathing in the tree. You're just sitting with the tree and being with it. Being. Right? That empty state of being. This beautiful way of being with nature. It was a beautiful post, and, and I loved watching that. Um, so, so to unhook, right? To unhook from what the mind creates of who I am, what I need, how I'm a good enough person. Just to unhook from the good enough story. Am I good enough? What do I need to feel safe and secure? In, in a world that's constantly changing and unstable by very nature, right? To unhook when we can create these conditions and something unhooks what's left. What's left? Sometimes there's a fullness, a sweetness, a sense of being, a contentment. There's knowing truth, truth of the way things are. Clarity, we would say clear comprehension. Presence. A lightness of presence, an energy of presence, a beingness, a peace and an ease that's underneath all the swirl of activity, a calm, a joyful quality. So good question to ask. What's left when I unhook? from my desire, from craving, from clinging, from greed, from a self-centered story. What's left? What's left? What's right about that? almost this invitation to like a sweetness of being, of just being. That's one more thing I'll talk about and then we'll end. And that's um, this line, another line from Gregory Kramer that I really like, um, where he says, and you have to think about this a little, suffering is obvious, but not not present. Doesn't make sense, right? Right? No, 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 no. So most of the time, when we're watching mindfully what the mind does, um, one of my teachers likes to say that um, most of us just want to live in the present moment and just land on it and be present in the present moment with stillness. But that uh, sometimes that's not so easy, so that's where you use the watching on these defilements and these attachments, you can watch it and see the presence or absence of them. 
if you can't land in stillness. You can watch what the mind does to avoid stillness, right? That's good advice. So very often, you know, we're trying to be in the present moment. Desire arises or aversion arises um, or a fogginess arises. And that's where we could say, oh, there's suffering here, right? There's suffering present. It's obvious. We can see it. It doesn't mean that it, to feel peace, it doesn't have to not be present. So we don't have to wait for enlightenment, a perfect mind. Your very seeing releases the grip. The grip. It can still be there, which means you're okay. It's another way to say we're okay right now. And that we have this cessation, this ceasing, all the time. We're capable of it. We can see it. So we'll end here. Um, the last time I talked about my grandfather um, with renunciation, I, we were talking about in his little village, they had a day of fasting around um, Yom Kippur, Jewish and very young boy, he went to, um, he was told to run an errand, and he had to fast. He didn't like it. Everybody was fasting. They were kind of a hungry group because they didn't have a lot of food. Like, we we have a lot here. And he went to the rabbi's quarters, and he caught the rabbi eating. And for him, this was, you know, well, religion and rules, forget it. You know, that was it for him. And he told his grandchildren this story all the time. And, um, and, and I always thought about why did he always make this point. And then I watched him go to all the holidays at the synagogue and actually do all the things that a person of that faith would do, right? And I was like, what is going on with him? Right? But I think he illustrates a certain point, and I bring back the story. Um, he didn't have a self-story about his religion, right? His religion didn't make him, if I follow the rules, I'm a good man, I'm a good Jewish man. If I don't follow the rules, I'm bad. If I believe in it, then I'm, I'll get this. If I don't believe in it, I get that, right? There wasn't this selfing and this objectifying of his faith or his practice. Um... And the Buddha kind of taught this about faith and about why we're not saying this is necessary of a religion. Because he said, you know, your practice does not make the man. And he was talking in the time, um, there were a lot of Hindu rituals where if you chanted this 108 times and burned incense and waved it this way and called out the name of the god, then you were going to be okay. That made you okay. That gave you a good identity as a religious person, and it gave you some safety and protection. And I think what he was trying to teach his grandchildren was that does not make the man. That does not make you. Right? Don't identify with the action or the belief. It's all an object in your mind. Right? Just come from the heart. Know what's true in your heart. And this is exactly what the Buddha taught. Don't just listen to what I say and follow it as a rule. 
right? But practice it and see what happens to your heart. And let your heart guide you. So that's why I love to talk about him and that story. Because I'd watch him dress up and go to synagogue and do all the things. I could not figure out why, because half the time he'd laugh at them. But it, right? he, just, he didn't create a self or a self-story. He didn't have an idea about it. It was what he felt like. It was just he followed his heart. He enjoyed what he enjoyed. It was meaningful in the way it was meaningful. Um, and he had no agenda. He put it down. And there was such freedom in watching him, such a joy, you know, in just watching him because it was just about joy. So, thank you for sitting so quietly and so still, such a big group. And at this point, I'd like us to meet in small groups and have some dialogue. And we can use the whole space, so that's the good news. You can spread out in groups of three, four, or five. Where's your hook? What's hooking you? What's not hooking you? Have you experienced some cessation, some letting go? And what's the flavor? What do you notice about letting go? <coughs> you have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.